Our goal with these midweek services, continuing to supplement our walk through the entire book of Mark, all the way up till Easter Sunday, is meant to take these these evening moments that I, I always am kind of fulfilled in these moments by the language of this prayer from Compline. It's on page 257 if you're hymnal, if you care, but don't worry about turning there. Just, just listen to the prayer here. You know, oh Lord, support us all the day long of this troubled life until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed. The fever of life is over and our work is done. Then, Lord, in your mercy, grant us safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That's my goal for these services, that we have that kind of feel to this sermon time. So I hope to be a little less boisterous. And we're just going to walk through the text, look at the story. Because the reason we're spending time in Mark is I think the way Mark tells the story is we're spending time in. It's not about what I can see. It's about what he says. So we're going to pick up on page 838 of your pew Bible, where we left off Sunday. Uh, Jesus had been in the synagogue and he'd healed this man with his withered hand, but it was about so much more than whether or not he's got the power to heal a man with a withered hand. Uh, It's also about all of these assumptions about religion that had been built up amongst the Hebrew people at this time, such as rules about Sabbath, rules about fasting, rules about washing, rules about eating with certain people. And remember, in and around the controversies over him not following these rules the way that the rabbis teach them, he's also proclaiming that God's kingdom has arrived apparently with him, and he's casting out demons kind of left and right. It's a little bit um, uh, obstructive even to, to his own work. It's, it's a distraction from what he really wants to do, which is teach. So he has to keep silencing the demons so he can teach. He's come out of this conflict where he's declared he is Lord of the Sabbath, that their rules do not subsume his created order that he is here to take advantage of and reclaim in a redemption of. And remember then, there was a great crowd that was following Jesus out away as the Herodians and the Pharisees begin to plot to destroy him. That's where we leave off. Okay, now coming into our text, bottom of the page, verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to them, to him, those whom he desired, and they came to him. So he calls a special insider crowd out of the big crowds that are following him. And verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Look at that. The same thing Jesus comes on the scene to do, as Mark tells it in chapter 1, preach and cast out demons. Now he calls to himself 12 out of all of the crowds who he claims as having his own authority, and he gives them that authority to do this same thing, to extend his kingdom, as he institutes it. 
And remember then, this is conflict with the darkness. This is power over real evils in people's lives. The 12, we could spend a lot of time on their names and their histories. We won't. You'll know some of them. Others, it might be. Uh, you don't even know them, right? It's how many of you have all 12 apostles memorized? That, that's it's probably easier to memorize the minor prophets than, than the 12 apostles. So in any case, he appointed 12, Simon, you should know him, to whom he gave the name Peter, little rock. Uh, James, not the author of the book, James, the son of Zebedee. This is the brother of John, right? So John, brother of James. John is the author of the books, John and First John. Uh, so they're the sons of Zebedee, uh, to whom he, Jesus, gave the name Boernages, uh, that is sons of thunder. And scholars, of course, will will hanker over what this means. But I, my favorite view is that this is more of Mark's human Jesus. And I don't know, ladies, how it works for you in your circles where the guys aren't. But uh, I'll, I'll break a rule. I'll let you know how it is where the ladies are. Where the ladies aren't, there are nicknames. Okay, uh, when there's when there's not women around, the guys call each other whatever they feel like calling each other, and sometimes it sticks. And if you don't like that it sticks, that's why it sticks. Okay, that's just how it works, right? They're all laughing because they know. So, so Boranages, sons of thunder. I mean, why did he call these guys that? Is it because Zebedee was thunder, or was it because they went off left and right on everything? You know, this and say and most of all, uh, these are the guys that'll pray for hellfire. You might remember to be cast down and stuff like that. So they're energetic, perhaps. In any case, you could spend more time than we really need to tonight on that. Uh, Andrew, that's Peter's brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, uh, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And just a little note about Judas there, right? In other, other Gospels, there's a little more foreboding, although clearly he's, he's still the betrayer here. Uh, verse 20, then he went home, or the KJV says he went. they went into a house. I don't, I don't know what the right answer there is, but they go into a house together somehow. Is it his home, perhaps? And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And that's the real point, that the crowds continue to be so overwhelming. There's so many people trying to get to Jesus that they don't have time or space to prepare food. And it's just, it's just that busy all the time. Um, uh, verse 21. Now, this is a setup for what's going to complete later. Uh, those of you who were in Bible study earlier today, the sandwich, right? Mark has a tendency to start a story, build another story into the core, and then complete the story on the end. And he's going to start a story about Jesus' family right now, but it's just a line. Now, we're going to go off somewhere else. We're going to come back to the family. All right. So that was uh, verse 21, right? Uh, when his family heard it, that said is he's got so many people around him, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And we're going to see later, even his mother comes along. Mary comes along. Now, does that mean Mary thought he was crazy? Yeah, maybe. Um, we don't know which of the family unit, you know, Jude, his brother, James, his brother, uh, who was really pushing to like, go get Jesus out of trouble, right? Hey, guys, our brother's talking like he's king of the world, and these other people, they're going to kill him. So we're going to go take him home and tell him he's not allowed to talk for a while, right? It's not like they're malicious in this, but they do think Jesus is, is going too far at this point, and they come to seize him, it says. But now the story is going to break away for a moment. 
Because also, verse 22, uh, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Baalzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So, you know, family says he's out of his mind. His enemies say he's demon-possessed, right? Baalzebul, lord of the flies, uh, lord of the dung heap. It's kind of the, the dark name for the prince of demons, the way they would have described him in this day. You can just say Satan in your head if it's easier for you. Um, but the point is they accuse Jesus of serving Satan. Jesus is the chief Luciferian. Jesus is the chief leader of the great cult of evil. Jesus is demon-possessed in darkness. So say the Pharisees. And verse 22, Jesus, not one to shy away from these kinds of things, he called them to him and he said to them in parables, right? Not, not directly, but in a story, he asked this question. It's a good question. How can Satan cast out Satan? Right? How are you going to do that, right? Um, how do you look at your own face now, without a mirror? You know, how do you do it? You can't do it. How is Satan going to throw himself out? Uh, uh, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Uh, do you hear the word house there is referring to uh, an ongoing lineage, a name, right? Uh, so that, I don't know, uh, uh, Ford, right? Uh, or what are those... I can't think of all the famous names people think are behind everything right now. The, um, I don't know, the conspiracy theorist famous names. I want to say Rutabagger, but that's not it. Who, who's the one? Bilderberger. There's the one. Bilderbergers or things like that. A house, a family whose identity continues from generation to generation. It doesn't just have to be a matter of your barons and your royalty. It's a matter of you share certain ideas and culture that's going to pass down. Christianity is such a thing, right? And so if a house is divided and not everyone in the marriage, say, is Christian and shares the faith, it is not surprising then that we see the family does not stand in the faith over time. That that's understandable. He's saying this is true not just about spiritual things, but about everything, right? If you're in a group of people, I don't know, pick your favorite sport, and you're going to go up against some other team, and you're arguing about what play you're going to run while the other team's there, guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose the game. So Jesus isn't speaking like crazy talk at the moment, right? He's just, just using common sense. And so if Satan, he says, in me, Jesus, has risen against himself, uh, then he is divided. He cannot stand. He's coming to an end. And in a sense, then, what he says to the Pharisees is, okay, so you think I'm Satan casting out Satan. That means Satan's team is going to lose. Why are you worried? Like, we're, we're destroying ourselves. What are you worried about? <laughs> like, it's, it's helping you, isn't it? Like, if that's really your argument, right? But that's not really what he thinks, right? Jesus, verse 27, here, here's the real fact. No one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. So that is to say, since I'm not Satan and I am casting out Satan, it's because I'm here to bind him and truly cast him out once and for all. And so what you see me doing is tying up my enemy so I can complete the finish on him. Then indeed I, he may plunder his house, and don't miss the fact that the plunder's you. You're the treasure. You, Christian, are what Jesus is stealing back, taking back, earning back, buying back, yeah, blood-bought, from, from Satan. 
So verse 28 always causes trouble, people. Uh, there's these couple verses here always causes questions. Christians like to apply this verse to themselves and then hurt their conscience. Well, you don't really need to. It's not what it's about. Um, but he says, uh, again, who's he talking to? He's talking to the scoffing Pharisees who say he's the devil, right? That's who he's talking to. And he says to them, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For, verse 30, they were saying of Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. Uh, the short answer, what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It is not believing Jesus Christ is sent by the Holy Spirit. That's it. It's all of it. It's not believing the word of God about Jesus Christ. And in that way, it's not believing the word of God as a, as a God. God comes as a word. He says, this is true. You go, nah, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And, and to be in that unbelief forever again. So it's not as though there isn't forgiveness for unbelief. right? But notice the way Mark says it. It's really clear. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. It's not that he's not forgiven. He just, he just can't get it. He doesn't want it. He doesn't care. Yeah? And so Christians shouldn't worry too much about being the scoffer this is talking about. There are plenty of sins we Christians should worry about that are creeping like gangrene upon us as a people and devouring our, our hearts and minds. But, but the big one isn't blasphemy against the Holy Spirit secretly taking place in corners. Uh, not, not, not among us. Yeah. So here it is for what it is. Uh, what he's saying is that I have come to save everybody and everything from everything. And the only way you're not saved is if you don't like that. Well, then you're kind of stuck. Right. Then, you, then you've rejected my spirit. Meanwhile, Ben, look who shows up. <laughs> his mother and his brother show up. I remember they were coming. Uh, and, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Verse 32, and remember this huge crowd, they can't get to him. There's too many people. Uh, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, hey, Jesus, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? This has got to be really weird to everybody, right? Like here he is, the most popular guy in the world, got tons of fans all around, wanted to spend every moment with him. And someone says, hey, your parents are here right? Your family's here. He's expected to bring them in and show them off, maybe give them some of the laurels, right? You're going to share the goods. You got the fame, pass it around a little bit, make everybody share in the glory of your name. But instead, when they shout to him, and this person kind of expects a good answer, like, oh, great, my mom, thank you so much. Instead, he's like, who are you talking about? What do you mean my mother's here? I don't care. I don't care about anyone except for, and this is, again, notice how a little crazy Jesus is, right? He's doing this in front of people. Right? He effectively shames, shames, uh, turns down his mother's invitation to talk to him uh, and says instead, right, looking about verse 34, at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my, my brother and, and my sister. Notice he takes it down a notch in terms of public priority to the like the lowest rung in the family ladder my sister right uh, he is my brother my sister 
and my mother. Whoever does the will of God, does the will of God. Uh, we, we know that this means it hears the word of God and keeps it. Again, believes what God's word has surely said. Uh, we know this is not about perfect works righteousness and having to earn everything and prove to God. It's more that when God says, I forgive you, you go, amen. And when he says, I forgive you for this, you say, you're right. That was a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. And when he says, don't do it again, you're like, I don't want to. I'm going to try not to. Uh, uh, I'm going to hold back at all costs. Dear Jesus, help me. Right? Uh, that is one who hears the call of salvation uh, and, and, and answers it with faith. And, and faith is the key. Yeah. Um, so there's this moment that goes by again where, where he points out the need for the word of God as the center of all of his ministry and the rejection of his words as the, the lack of salvation. And from there, he, he launches into his first real kind of famous parable, this story that we heard read a moment ago. And I'm, I'm not going to read uh, all of it all the way through verses 1 to 11 here. Um, I think it's well known enough that if I just repeat it to you, that'll be sufficient. There's a guy out there with some seeds. He's throwing it everywhere he can. And, and frankly, he's a bit reckless because he doesn't care where it lands. Some of it's landing on the street. You know, they just salted for the ice storm. You know, he's throwing, he's throwing seeds out there. Uh, but some of it lands uh, in really great soil. It's exactly where it's supposed to be. Uh, some of it lands in soil that looks pretty good, but it's a little shallow. And there's some rocks there, right? And some of it lands in soil that also looks pretty good, but it's, it's got other seed there. It's got, got weeds growing there. And he's preaching again out in public to this large crowd from a boat. And he's telling them that this is what the kingdom of God is like, this, this story, right? And uh, I mean, as Christians who've hopefully grown up in the church hearing this story, you have some idea right now what it's about. It's not entirely new to you. But can you imagine, though, if that's all I ever did as your pastor was tell stories like that? Right? No application, no connection, just pictures of things that Christianity is kind of like this, like that. Um, you know, there, there's a whole school of thought that pastors are supposed to do that, that, that we're supposed to get up here and you know, I should spend at least an hour to three hours a week on the Internet finding funny stories to tell you, you know, to make this worth it to you. And, and people really believe that. Uh, and so, I mean, we can, we can, we can kind of laugh a little bit like it's really they think that. Um, why? You know, well, they'll say, some of them will say, well, because Jesus told stories. <laughs> and, and that's where this particular text is like, wow, but you don't read the Bible, do you? Um, it, it, this is the challenge. Jesus tells this story. His disciples are going to now ask him what the story means. And he's going to answer, I was supposed to confuse you. That, that's what he's doing. He's, he's confusing. Well, everyone who doesn't think that he's the solution to the story. Which is the same thing we just came out of, right? Jesus is the Holy Spirit's answer to the world. And so he's going to tell stories about himself. And if you don't understand it's about him, it's not going to make any sense. So he tells a story about the sower throwing the word, right? Now, again, let's, let's look at this part about confusing people on purpose. Let me take you through it from the text here. Uh, verse 10, right? When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, Notice the promise here. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. In a sense, he's like, don't worry about it. You know, I'm right here with you. You've got the secret. But for those outside, right, for those who are, who are not inside the kingdom of God, for those who are not hearing Jesus preaching about 
himself as the king and understanding it. Everything is in parables, verse 12, so that, quote from Isaiah, they, that's the outsider, may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. From here, he's going to explain the parable, but but that own answer right there, that first section, that's, that's pretty fascinating to say the least, if not disturbing. That when asked by his disciples, Jesus, why did you tell this story? He says, it's to confuse everybody who's an unbeliever so they stay an unbeliever. Somewhere in there, our standard belief about mission and the conversion of the unbeliever to Christianity and the gospel of Jesus saving the world seems to have a little conflict, right? Just barely, at least. And this is, this is a place where I think all of us, regardless of our Christian tradition and our history, can just remember that the glory of God is in hiding his majesty in things we can't understand, and then in his mercy, giving us enough. And sometimes that means he's going to give you this truth and this truth, and if you try to make them resolve, you destroy them both. But if you believe them, they unlock all sorts of new realities. I mean, one such very simple truth, dear Lutheran, is that the body and blood of Jesus Christ is given for you to eat and drink as bread and wine. This is scientifically you know, impossible in every way, shape, and form. There's no explaining this. It's a straight-up miracle. Okay? So, so, well, you know, election, the doctrine of election is a miracle. So the fact that Jesus, on the one hand, does not desire the death of the wicked, would that the evil man would turn from his way and repent, sends his word into the darkness to convert sinners unto God, and indeed has sworn by an oath that a remnant will survive this world through his salvation, which he then purchased by his own blood as a universal atonement of all creation, doesn't mean that for those who've decided they don't want it, once they've decided they don't want it, he doesn't have the right to say, fine, then you're going to stay there. And they got 30, 40, 70, 80 years left of life on this planet. But you know what? They already said no. And he's under no obligation to go out of his way to give them another chance. None. Even if they inherited their no from their parents or their grandparents several generations before, God is not obligated to save anyone. We don't deserve it. That's what he's saying here. Yeah. It's not as though he doesn't want people to say, hey, Jesus, what's the parable mean? It's kind of the point. Like they have to ask him, <laughs> right? He's going to, oh, I'll tell you. To you, I will give the secret. Yeah. And, and again, that's what he says next. Uh, verse 12, excuse me, verse 13. Uh, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? I think there's some implication there that at least in Mark, his answer to what this parable means is the key to the next couple of parables in a row. So they build on each other. It seems obvious, but you know you could debate it, I suppose. Uh, verse 14, though, he's, he's very clear. The sower sows the word. Yeah. This idea of the farmer scattering stuff is the word of God coming, which on the one hand, we want to do see as you know Jesus Christ is preaching the word. That's what he's doing. 
But think in you know, John's language for a moment here too. The word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the Father created the earth by sowing the word. Let there be light and so forth, right? And then the Father sends the Son, who is the word, into the world uh, in order to redeem the world. Uh, in this way, you can hear this parable from the start as being about the Father sending Jesus. And Jesus is the word being sent. You can also hear it as being about Jesus hearing the word. Now, let's, we'll, we'll come back to that thought in a moment, though. Just hold that one on the side for a second. So, um, so or so is the word. Verse 15, and these are the ones along the path. So he's going to lay them all out, right? The seed on the path where the word was sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And uh, I, you know, without trying to describe it to you, let me just suggest to you that this is a majority of people on the planet. Majority of people on the planet. That when, when the words of the Bible come to them, it just vanishes. It doesn't really mean anything to them. It's no more to them than any other story, which they might give it credit for half a second, think it's kind of funny right, or, or interesting or whatever, but it's, um, it, it doesn't stay there. And the reason is because the devil's lies have become so true in their head that the truth bounces off. And that's how the devil's going to steal the word. The word comes, but they can't hear it. It doesn't make sense to them. Yeah. Uh, then verse 18. No, I'm sorry. My eyes are getting old. It's dark up here. Verse 16. There we go. These are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Kind of a, a long way around to saying, you know, persecution or trial. Um, but, you know, the amazing thing perhaps here is to see that these are believers at some point in their life. And then they are not believers by the end of their life. Uh, it, it is possible to fall away. And the two ways to fall away are the ones that are here in the rocky soil and the, and the weedy soil. And they are sort of too much suffering on one end and too much pleasure on the other end. But the, the issue is never the suffering or the pleasure. The issue is whether your faith is, is prepared to believe through the suffering or, or even to believe through the pleasure. So in this case, the suffering, right, the trials come. In order to remember and hold to and trust in the word of God, you have to risk something. You have to suffer. You have to, you have, to have somebody not like you, right? You have to someone, in fact, perhaps harm you. And so rather than that, uh, you change. I think the example that I did mention earlier this morning, and there's plenty of churches in Rockford with rainbow flags flying outside. Okay. Well, rather than suffer, you know, you would have to take a stand. You'd have to be on the wrong side of history or something like that, right, to, re to resist that. So Jesus warns against this again, right? And they, they seem to spring up. They want to believe what Jesus says, but when what Jesus says comes into conflict with what they want, you know, down they go. And they burn in the sun. Uh, and then you have the uh, uh, those sown among thorns, verse 18. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Uh, so 
the opposite of suffering. Here you have the pursuit of the pleasure. Right. Whether that's by thinking that if I have money, I'll get the pleasure, whether that's just a matter of, of worldly cares and anxieties, uh, always being driven to have more or keep what you got. The point is the focus is always on me and what I need. Right? Uh, and as a result, uh, the space for the word to grow in trust is just is choked out by the covetousness. Covetousness is idolatry at the end of the day. So again, he warns against these things in this parable. Um, uh, say something about that in just a moment. The, uh, the last verse here, you know, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones that hear the word, accept it, bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Uh, every Christian, when they read about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and the parable of the sower, they go through a part in them where they're wondering, am I the bad soil? Am I the blasphemer? And I just spent a bunch of time saying, you know, you're not blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. That's not, it's never about you. You're a Christian. You're here. You want to be a Christian. Um, so also, when you, when you ponder the parable of the sower, you got to start with the assumption that you are good soil because you're listening. You're listening right now. So it's your good soil, okay? It's, it's it. So you're going to bear fruit. You hear it, you accept it, you believe it, you're going to bear fruit. And how much fruit actually doesn't matter. 30, 60, 100 fold. Jesus is going to make the fruit. He's going to make a lot of fruit. So the bigger thing to take from the parable is to see that, okay, now here I am in a world in which God is made. And so I hear the word in God and, of God and keep it, but I got to know that there's people out there that aren't going to hear it even a little bit. There's people out there that are going to hear it. They're going to try to change it. There's people out there that are going to hear it. They're going to give it up to get more of what they want. That threat is always around me trying to distract, saying, hey, your mother and your brothers have come, right? Like I say, who are my mother and my brothers? There are those that hear the word of Jesus Christ and they keep that word. They keep it unto salvation. All right, I, I said uh, I one more kind of promise thought I want to make sure I complete here. And that's how Jesus is the fulfillment of this parable. Now, if you really are concerned about how do I know I'm the good soil? Well, you're not to begin with. Of course you're not. If it's really up to you to receive the word of God perfectly, complete it completely, live in it fully, believe it entirely your entire life, yeah, you're, you, you already fell flat. It's too late. But whenever Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, heard the word of God, he didn't miss a beat. He took it all in. He believed every single ounce of it, and he applied it perfectly all the way to the day when he quoted Psalm 22 as he bled out on the cross. And he did this so that you could be saved. And because he did this so you could be saved, you can know then, since you're hearing it, here it is, hallelujah, guess what? You're good soil now. That's the promise. Huh? So hear the secret of the parable, Jesus saved you. Open up the parable, use it to understand the other parables, and then be on guard against the darkness of this age. You weren't sent out here, sent out here to kick it back and store up in barns. You were sent out here to, remember, profess that Christ is risen from the dead and in so doing, drive away the darkness, including the demons. You don't got to be a preacher or an exorcist to do that. You just got to pray the Psalms out loud once in a while. Yeah. Hallelujah to that. In Jesus' name, amen.